Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. And today, I am joined by engaged citizen and businessman, Corey Nathan. Corey grew up in Bruce Springsteen land. He is a Jew turned Christian. And today, we're going to be talking about how we can discuss things like religion and politics without killing each other. We could have productive discussions and we can even agree to disagree. So, Corey, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's great to have, great to be with you, Curtis. Thanks for uh, thanks for including me in the conversation. Well, why don't you start off by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, you, you already hit some of the highlights. I grew up, my family's all from Brooklyn, but I grew up more on the Jersey side. And in fact, yeah, you mentioned Bruce Springsteen. We, we had some of the same high school teachers. I'm from that same area, the Freehold Regional Area. And then uh, about 20-something years ago, I moved out here and uh, to Southern California. I've been out here for, you know, 25, 27 years, actually. And did grew up. So let's see. Professionally, I started out as a stockbroker during the day, and I was going to a theater conservatory at night. So it was two very, very different worlds. But I've always had those two things kind of running in, in parallel, where I've been a business person, but also with uh, one foot firmly planted in creative pursuits. So these days, uh, I took a I took a turn. I don't know. Some would say for the worse, but <laughs> put myself in harm's way, I guess, because after you know building businesses for twenty something years, I decided that I wanted to be more active in the uh, the town square, if you will, the virtual town square, because I just thought that any number of issues we should be able to talk about a lot more productively, but we've lost the ability to talk to each other. We've lost the ability to talk to people that we even suspect might disagree with us on certain issues. So we started a program called, as you alluded to, talk of politics and religion about killing each other. And uh, yeah, it's a, we have podcasts, but it's a, it's a whole program that we're doing. We're trying to just remember how to you know, live with each other better. You know, but the other part of my story that you also mentioned was I grew up in a very observant Jewish family. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. And in 2000, the spring and summer of 2000, I went on a pretty in-depth inquiry. And by the fall, October of that same year, I ended up becoming a Christian. So that was, you know, for a Jewish family, especially a Jewish family with my background, we you know, one generation removed from part of my family escaping Ukraine, which was part of the uh, Russian empire at the time. And, uh, you know, from the other part of my family having escaped Holocaust, but a huge chunk of my family ended up dying in the Holocaust. So for me to become a Christian, it was, it, was, it wasn't just like, oh, you know, I, I think I'm going to try this thing out. I'm going to try like trying a different ice cream flavor. It was a really big deal. So that's a, a little sprinkling of uh, my my background, some religion, some politics, some business. So, so there you go. So what made you want to go from a, a Jewish to a Christian? It was a lot. It wasn't. The funny thing is, it's an interesting way you put it. It wasn't that I wanted to. It was that I was compelled. It was that the a lot of the questions that I was asking 
they were big questions. And it's, you know, without going too deep into it, a lot of people wonder like, what happens after we die? Or, you know, how did this whole thing get started? This universe thing get started? How did life begin? And, you know, is there something special about the human creatures? Is there a God? Uh, do, do, do human beings have a relationship with a creator God? Like I was just asking big questions. And over the course of that year, uh, I had some mentors in my life and they were kind of pointing me in a certain direction, but I went about my own inquiry and read a lot of books, came across, you know, great, you know, popular theologians like C.S. Lewis. And I, then I came across other theologians and, and what we would call apologists, people who make a ready case, a ready defense for the hope that's within them, the Christian the- theological point of view. And I also studied, I went back and studied, looked at how other philosophies and religions could answer some of those big questions too, as well as to see what my Jew, what Jewish scholars might say, some of the new things that I was finding in this inquiry and in talking to people and talking to scholars, talking to faith leaders. Long story short, the, the, it was the resurrection, man. Like what culminated in the first fruits of the resurrection and Jesus being bodily raised from the dead, there was something philosophically, I came to the conclusion that I believe in an open universe, meaning it wasn't just this closed order of, of things that nothing can act inside of it or outside of it. That wasn't part, just part of the natural order. And thus that allowed for the possibility of something as profound as the resurrection. And then from a philosophical standpoint, a theological standpoint, that center, that central point in history, just, it all came together for me. And I don't know if, if some of your folks who listen aren't Christians, if, if this is starting to sound like nonsense to them, but it was, it was making too much sense to me the way that it was, that story was more coherent and cohesive. It was a, it was a better way to answer those basic questions for me. Uh, not that I would, not that I could convince anybody else of it necessarily, but the questions that I was asking and the answers that I was looking for. And the funny thing about that too, by the way, is for every answer that you arrive at, it's really just opens, opening the door for a hundred more questions. So I'm still on that inquiry, but the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus just answers some of the most basic ones still more coherently and cohesively. And I didn't want to do it because it was really inconvenient is maybe not a, even enough, serious enough of a word to describe it, but I had to, I had to, because I'm a truth seeker and it was as, as feeble as I am in my humanity, it was the most, uh, it was as close to the truth as I could, could arrive at. And I just decided to make that leap. So, so after becoming a Christian later in life, what observations do you notice about the Christian culture versus the people that grew up in the church and in the Christian culture? That's another great question because I felt like coming into the church, I still feel like an alien at times. This is 20 something years ago now. So, you know, coming in, not as a kid who was brought to Awana or a kid's group or something like I came in as a 29 year old man you know, and, and inquis- inquisitive truth seeker, like I said before. And what I was finding, maybe I just ended up at a church that continued to make it, continued to force me to question those conclusions that I had arrived at, not because scripture was any less true, not because the New Testament, the letters in the New Testament, the gospel accounts were any less true. 
but the people, <laughs> you know, you, you know, the most read version of the Bible is the, the believer's behavior version. <laughs> so, so not that I expected all Christians to be Christ. Of course, that's not the case. But I think that there were some key things that, that I found and still find to be primary defining characteristics of the church, especially that first church that I was going to for about 10 years, were things that were the most important to them were at odds with what I was reading in scripture. You know, and, and as you can guess, those things often came down to political and social issues. Not that, I don't know, I mean, to me, I, like, I got to that point, I became a Christian, and even at growing up as a Jew, like Torah and Hebrew Bible, New Testament, uh, once I became a Christian, was authoritative to me. So when I read a passage, whether it was in Leviticus in the Torah, or whether reading the accounts of Jesus's life and teachings, when I read something about Im immigrants, for example, or widows and orphans, for example, and that it seems to be directly at odds with what a bunch of guys I go to church with feel very, very passionately about, that contradiction has made it more difficult for me in my faith, you know, like. What, like I said, the believer's behavior version, it, I'm just being really candid with you, Curtis. It's just, it's made it really challenging for me. And then, you know, obviously over these last six, seven years, once, you know, the Trumpster came around and a bunch of my, my buddies from church just think he's, you know, he's the second coming. And I'm not even exaggerating that much. I mean, they just think, you know, I've heard folks refer to him as, as or compare him to King David. And it just grieves me, man. It really challenges my faith. I'm just being really candid with you. Well, how, how did your family respond when they found out that you were going to become a Christian? And what is your relationship with them now? Yeah. So when I first became a Christian, it was, it was pretty hard. They, you know, because we still have, my, my grandmother lived through what's called pogroms. My grandmother lived through times when men wearing crosses on their chests would rampage through her town, burn down their houses, rape her friends and neighbors behead her. You know, she had a story of her next door neighbor. Her, her best friend came out one day after one of the pogroms with the heads of both of her parents in her hands. They were beheaded. So these, this was a searing living memory for us. And not that guys who, you know, love their Bible, love their church, take the, you know, uh, and take the, the bread and, you know, drink the wine and stuff. Not, not that all of them are swinging swords and beheading our neighbors, but that when I said I'm a Christian, it had that, that memory, that sort of family memory to those in my family that I told. So it came with a lot of weight. Now, I knew that that didn't represent the Christianity that I had come to understand. It certainly didn't represent the Christ that I came to know, the Jesus that I came to know. But I had to cut through a lot of those, that baggage, if you will. So my father, my father had a very we had a two hour talk. It was the morning of Thanksgiving in, in 2000 that I told him because we took a red eye back to New Jersey. So I told him that morning, it was like a two hour talk and he was very like even keeled, but certainly concerned, but he didn't really reveal his hand until a month later when he sent me literally a 10 page single spaced letter, 10 pages saying all the reasons why I can't, I mustn't, I can't, I should not become a Christian. And it was from, he has a little bit of a historical background as a historian, you know, so he used history, he used our family's history, he used theology and, you know, the religious angle, he used politics. He understood that it had, it came 
with sort of a political weight to it, a political significance to it. In fact, my mother's reaction was a little bit more funny. It was more, she didn't mean it to be so, but like one of her reactions was, Ronnie, did you hear sons of born again Republican? <laughs> you know, so she she just immediately assumed that I became a Christian. I therefore became a Republican. But um, yeah, so she she was Phyllis. My mother was was taken aback and she responded in sort of her comedic Jewish New York mother way. But my dad, my dad's reaction, that letter that he sent a month later and all the different reasons that he was laying out why was just wrong for me to become a Christian was actually the beginning of a conversation that we started. And those first three, three, three and a half years, it was very tense, you know, but we were in a conversation because I used that letter one paragraph at a time, just to start to answer him. And then for every answer, for every paragraph that I was sending, he was sending me responses to my responses. So we went back and forth a whole bunch of times and just really, it was just a conversation. And over the long term. I believe that it ultimately enriched my relationship with my father uh, because we got past wanting to score points or make a point or the, the notion that we could convince each other of anything and got to the point where we were, we realized our relationship is more valuable than winning a point about a certain thing in history or I don't know. It wasn't debate. It wasn't contentious after a while, you know, whereas when we first started, it was very contentious. But I learned just stay in the conversation and nurture the relationship. So, and once I got to that point in, in my thinking of how to relate to him, ironically, I was able to actually persuade him on certain things. Not he's still he's not a Christian yet, but but his view of Jesus is really nuanced. You know, he wasn't even open to it. And then eventually he started actually reading the New Testament, or he read some books that I sent him. He really enjoyed some uh, N.T. Wright books. Tom Wright, a great historian and Christian scholar, Christian theologian. He wrote. He read a bunch of C.S. Lewis. He read a whole bunch of stuff. I see John Howard Yoder. Um, he read a bunch of stuff I sent him and vice versa. He sent me some stuff. Some of the early stuff that he sent me was just very adversarial. It was like there was one treatise he sent me called You Take Jesus, I'll Take God. He's like, he was throwing the gauntlet down. But eventually my dad got to a point where he saw Jesus as what's called the tzaddik, which means like the great rabbi of his generation. My dad also accepted Jesus as the, you know, he saw Jesus as the prophet and, and he should have been recognized as a prophet the way that Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, you know, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible are recognized. And he even said that Jesus is a Messiah candidate, but he said he's a failed Messiah candidate, but here's where the real nuance comes in. He says, the failure, though, was not the failure of Jesus. The failure was the failure of the people of Israel. So, yeah, over time, that conversation's just evolved. And uh, just, you know, I guess, I guess the long, the short way of saying that is just stay in a conversation, nurture those relationships. Even when it's fraught, there's still a way to stay in that conversation, stay in the game, man. So, yeah. Have you ever faced any hostility for maybe going against some of the political beliefs of the people in your church community? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, Tell us about that. <laughs> how much time we got. <laughs> um, so I've been kicked out of Bible studies. I was screamed out of an auditorium. Uh, my kids went to a Christian school. I, uh, yeah, that, that one instance was really disturbing. It's still like, there were a couple in particular. So that, that one was a lady came up to give a talk at the school and I thought she was going to talk about present day Poland 
and how it was to grow up in a socialist or a, a communist country, you know, an Eastern Bloc country and the history of all that. But she gave an hour long talk about Barack Hussein. Every time she mentioned his, his name, she said Barack Hussein Obama. And to pose this theory that she had that he's really a Marxist and probably a Muslim, too, on top of that, and also probably a terrorist. And I was just like, what? like, OK, so she listened to whatever talking points from whatever conspiracy theory show. And now she's spewing it and kind of vomiting on the rest of us. That's her freedom to do so. It's even the freedom, you know, of, of the head of the school to invite some some wackadoo to say, you know, OK, your school. OK, got it. But I had to get up and I said, look, you guys like we all have different political. Well, not all of us. I'm not even talking about the political opinions. I'm talking about who we are. We're a it was a classical model, the, the trivium kind of education model. We're a school. We're a Christian school. We're a classical Christian school. What does this have to do with any of that? So just I asked the question, you know, I asked the question, you know, not that I don't know, not that I wanted to get into a political debate, but I just wanted to know, like, if this is who we are, let's just be honest about it. Because I wouldn't bring my kids to a school that's trying to, you know, trying to brainwash them that, you know, somebody who happens to be a Democrat must be a Marxist and a communist and a, you know, Muslim and a, and a terrorist or whatever the hell that she was feeling. You know, if that's who we are, then 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 just just say so. Just market it. I'm sure you'll get a lot of people who are really passionate about that kind of conspiracy theory type stuff. You know, I didn't even say that. I just asked, you know, that's how I feel about it now. But like I just got up. I said, who are we? What does this have to do with classical Christian education? Before I even finished a sentence, I was getting screamed at from the back of the room. You know, and when I left the auditorium, people were honking at me as I'm walking through the parking lot, yelling at me through their windows. And threat of violence was definitely in the air. People coming way too close to me, you know, driving way too fast in a parking lot for anybody's comfort. And it was because I asked a question, you know, about who we are and what's important to us. You know, the other time... The other time that comes to mind right away, and there've been a lot of these, I mean, over the years, like, not that I want to get myself into trouble, but this, again, this is one of the reasons I'm doing talk politics and religion about killing each other. It's like, where are our priorities? If we're just, if we're just honest with ourselves about them, then, then let's do it. You know, the, the, so the other one that comes to mind is uh, we went, my, my wife and I went on a, a retreat. It was like a, with the Bible study that we were, we had a Sunday school class that we were a part of. And we went on this retreat and the guys stayed up late going through scripture and uh, just talking about scripture. And uh, the immigration thing came up I, and I looked around the room I'm like, hey, guys, you know, I think pretty much everybody here feels very passionately about like closed borders and that kind of thing. And I don't know, this chapter that we're reading seems to evoke something very differently, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm gleaning something very different here, you know, and then we just went one after the other after the other, which where scripture was at odds with what their political preferences were. Not, not every guy, there was about a half a dozen of us there, maybe seven, seven guys total there that were staying up late. And, you know, probably came across just like an obnoxious ass um, in the way that I was doing it. Cause I, you know, in a way I was trying to cause some trouble, but in a way I was, again, I was asking the question, like, what's more important to us guys? Like what is more, if we come across something in scripture that that is at odds with who our favorite, you know, talking talk radio show host is saying, are we going to be willing to say, okay, no, scripture is more important to me? Or can we just be honest with ourselves and say, you know what, my 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 political preferences are more important than scripture. 
So the next morning, they, we still had another day or two left at the, uh, the retreat. The next morning, one of the guys got up early and he's like, dude, yeah, you probably, probably should leave. <laughs> so, so I was like, man, you know, it really, that grieved me too, because I was trying to, we were trying to build relationships. We we're trying to make friends. And, um, you know, and, and again, I, I'm sure I came across uh, obnoxious. Plus, you know, if in fact, a bunch of those guys really did feel very strongly about their political beliefs then I was rubbing up the wrong way against them. So I kind of understand it, but like, that's tragic, actually. That's tragic. Like, you know, and, and these last six, seven years have only illuminated that that much more. Like people who are trying to train their children up in the way they should go uh, and saying that honesty is important or just any, pick any piece of scripture. The fruit of this, is a fruit of the scripture important? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Are these things important to you? Do we believe what the Bible says about love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. Do, are these things true? Because the guy that we picked for, for office and then we're cheering and going to his, you know, wearing his hat and stuff and sending in $5 a month to his, to his, you know, his campaign, his grift, you know, that guy doesn't represent any of that. So, you know, I just, I'd say just be consistent, you know? So yeah, the answer is I continue to come up against it, but I'm trying to be better at, uh, I'm trying to be better at not coming across so obnoxious. I'm trying to be better at not alienating the people who hold those views. I'm trying to be better at giving the grace that I would want. And I'm trying to be better at understanding how people arrived at those positions. You know, and I, I think I've been making some progress just understanding it better. Uh, but depending on the day, I, uh, I'm still a, you know, I'm still a Jew from Jersey. So I'm still going to come across a certain way, I guess. So, Yeah. Do you feel like, speaking of that, do you feel like polarization, what do you think about it? Do you feel like it's getting better or getting worse? In some ways, it's getting worse. But in other ways, it's getting better. So by getting worse, I mean that when we as a country, as a world, go through a pandemic, you would think that that would be one of those points in history where we get over secondary and tertiary differences, join together and figure out how to get through it and provide comfort to those who are hurting and who've lost loved ones. But a pandemic, something as historic as a pandemic, a plague, and it only served to polarize many of us. Um, not everyone, but many of us. So, you know, there were other incidents, you know, like, like January 6th, I really thought that January 6th would be another one of those moments where the fever would break and folks, no matter how much they supported Trump, could see, oh, this is bad. This is bad for our country. This is bad for our politics. This is bad for you know, our culture. But again, it was like living folks who live in a different bubble that are hearing a different narrative about it. You know, immediately we're being fed the talking points of how to continue fighting this, cult, this supposed culture war. You know, they were being fed as as people were still in the Capitol. Like it was 1130 my time. And I heard the beginnings of what, what still are the talking points. Well, where was your outrage when they were storming through Portland? You know, where was your outrage when, you know, they were talking about after George Floyd was murdered and the protests throughout the summer of 2020? You know, they were talking about the other the other talking points were like, well, what did you think would happen when the you know, when the election was stolen? Many people are upset that the election was stolen, you know, so there were there or or 
you know, this is a false flag operation. It's really Black Lives Matter posing as as MAGA people because we know MAGA people are the good people and they would never do such a thing. So those talking points were already being fed. And many, many of my many acquaintances and, and, and even friends still have some version of those talking points so that they don't have to really reckon with the, the, the damage and the insidiousness of, of what led to that day. So in some ways it's getting worse, but I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, uh, I can't control all that. I can't, I can't silence the, uh, the dishonesty and the perversion and the, the, the celebration of violence, the inciting of violence from whether it's Trump or Sean Hannity or Dan Bongino or whoever the latest, you know, talking head is. I can't do it. I can't really do anything about that. I can't even do anything about even one of my best friends who likes to listen to it all day, every day. But I can sit down and have a nice whiskey with him and just be better at understanding where he's coming from. You know, not be better at the rhetoric game, not be better at the rhetorical ping pong. That's not my game. That's not my my agenda because I am I'm not going to convince him of anything. But again, like it's getting better, getting better at the opportunities when sovereignty or God or whatever you believe, when when fate puts in front of me an individual and gives me the opportunity to nurture a relationship with somebody that I disagree with, whether it's a wide chasm of disagreement like somebody who still thinks that the election was stolen and thinks that either January 6th didn't really happen, or it was maybe even a good thing. If I have an opportunity to talk to that person, I'm going to do, I don't know, I'm not going to convince that person hundred to, to go 180 degrees off of what they believe, but I will, I'll be that salt in the soup for them. I'll be that little granule of salt in the soup for them and hope to, to influence them by 1%, you know, 1% at a time. And then what I'll also do is I'll try to, earn the right to another conversation and continue that conversation and continue nurturing that relationship, you know, and, and the risk that I'm taking though, is that when I am most effective at having influence on someone or or having any amount of persuasion with someone, I also have to be open to the possibility of being persuaded or at least better understanding. So in that regard, I am more hopeful because I see those opportunities on a daily basis, whether it's folks that I'm reconnecting with online or new friends that I'm making through, through doing this thing or meeting somebody new like you. And, and perhaps, you know, somebody might be hearing some of these stories, you know, and, and either maybe I'm making things worse because they think they definitely know I'm an asshole now. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I hope I'm, I'm not, I'm allowed to say that word, <laughs> but but yeah, in, in my little corner of the world, I can't, I can't account for all of this. I can't account for the things I can't control and that are way beyond my purview, but I can't account for what's in front of me and what fate or God or sovereignty has put in front of me and try to be better at, at making the most out of those opportunities. It goes to the, what, what's that, uh, you know, the prayer that they do in, in uh, AA, it's um, have the, do you, you know what I'm talking about, Curtis? I can't say I do. I've never been in an AA meeting. It's um, it's it's something along the lines of have the strength. Gosh, there's people who probably know what I'm talking. I wish I had the the coin I in my think pocket. It's something like have the uh, serenity to the serenity prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The serenity to to uh, know that there's certain things you can't change. The strength 
or the conviction or what have you to, to change the difference. things you can yeah, and the wisdom to know to the know difference between the two. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, g- give the listeners tips on how they can have more productive conversations about these difficult discussions and topics when they are trying to talk to each other, or other people. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great, great point uh, or great question. And I've already been alluding to a bunch of it. One is, I think, I think this notion often go in with our dukes up. If, if it's almost like we're trying to sniff out people who disagree with us on something. And then when we find them, we're going to go into battle mode. I just don't think that is productive. I think if instead of being in transactional mode, we go into relational mode, meaning instead of trying to close the deal and win the transaction, you are just taking one step in terms of nurturing a relationship, or even if it's not a relationship, even if it's just continuing the conversation, you know, that gets us out of this rhetorical ping pong thing. Because again, there are very, very, very few times that we're going to convince anybody of anything, especially making a 180 degree turn. Like if you're, if you're very much passionate about uh, responsible gun legislation, for example, and you meet somebody, talk with somebody about a month ago, who's, who had a tattoo on his arm. That was the Greek or Latin translation of come and take them. He's very passionate about his second amendment rights. Come and take them, you know? And I just wanted to laugh at him. Like, dude, nobody, nobody's coming to take your little thinker toy guns. So that wasn't a good start to the conversation, but like, I wasn't going to convince him to be all in favor of like even red flag laws, let alone like more comprehensive gun legislation. But if, if I go in thinking, you know what, I can learn a lot from this individual and maybe we'll have another conversation beyond this or maybe not. But if I go in more with an open heart to like, what, what influenced this guy? Like, well, why, why does he think what he thinks? Help me understand where you're coming from better. And what are your concerns that that feed why you're so passionate about, you know, about guns, you know, just trying to understand that individual better. So, you know, one is don't go in in battle mode because you're not really convince anybody. And if you think it like, if you're going in thinking, well, I'm not going to convince this person, but a whole bunch of other people are watching. That's, that's, I don't know. That's vain to me. That's vain glorious. It's like, it's performative. It's even worse. Your, your mindset is even worse. But if you go in thinking I can have a good conversation with a human being and I could go in where the most prominent ingredient is grace, giving this person who I disagree with some grace, understanding that they have a life story and they have experiences and there's reasoning behind what they think and what they believe. I think that's a better posture to have a human connection with that person. And ironically, to maybe influence them again, not 180 degrees off of what they believe, but one degree off of what they believe. So a couple other things along those lines is the posture of help me understand, help me understand. Like, I don't get it. Like, I don't get, I don't get why, um, I don't know. So like there's a, right now, a lot of people feel very passionately on one side or the other about the abortion issue. But I think that, I think that a lot of people, like in my case, I happen to believe that life starts at conception, but I'm identifying a lot more with folks who are very passionately pro-choice and how, how is that possible? Well, it's possible because I think that a lot of folks I know who would identify as pro-choice are actually pro-life in a more holistic sense. And it's only through coming, come, having these types of conversations with an open heart, you know, but if I were to go into those conversations with like baby killer, you know, type of language, I would never get anywhere and I wouldn't understand them. And we would just be enemies. 
So the help me understand posture. And then the other thing is you don't got to know everything. You know, in fact, when we come across something that I don't know, I find it as a gift because it allows me to say, that is a great question. I have no idea. Can I look it up and come back to you? Like, can I, can I, you know, can I come back to you in a week? Give me some time to look this up and learn a little bit about it. And what that does is my brother and I used to have this expression in business called bam, book another meeting. Like we weren't looking to close in deals. We were just looking to book another meeting. And eventually over time, we'd close a deal, you know, but it's even more important in conversations like these, like you just want to book another meeting, bam, you know, and, and, and the way you do that is when somebody comes across something that like really stumps you, it's a gift. Don't try to like, you know, BS your way out of it. It's, it's a gift so that you can go and learn something new and come back and report to them, you know, or if it's something that they, they know about, like I'm talking to a, a buddy I've been playing cards with for a long time. And he, he's big gun advocate, has a you know, locker and a whole collection. There's, there's a lot of stuff I don't know. I don't know what California's laws are all about. So he's teaching me what they are. You know, I'm learning something from him. He's not going to turn me into a big gun enthusiast, but we're going to learn from each other. And if nothing else, like he's going to know that not everybody who's in favor of, you know, I happen to be very passionate about red flag laws because it's, it's, it touches upon Anyway, it's a side conversation, but uh, but he he might he might uh, drop his guard a little bit about maybe that one type of uh, type of solution, the one that actually just passed the house and and President Biden signed, I think, on Saturday. Uh, that was that was written mostly by the Republican senator from Texas. He led the the negotiations, but yeah. So those are a few things like go with an open heart, a whole lot of grace. Ask, help me understand with that kind of disposition. And uh, bam, book another meeting. Just keep, make it, make it more about the relationship over the transaction, more, more relational versus transactional. So those are a few things that really help. Got just a couple of more questions for you. One of the questions is, tell us about the 50C3 that you created to help people during the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh man, nobody's ever asked me about that. So yeah, so we started this thing and, and it evolved over time because yeah, so I, uh, I did a lot of work in the entertainment industry, specifically the entertainment advertising industry. And it's all, this whole community within the, the larger entertainment industry, the people who make all the movie posters and the movie trailers, like the coming attractions that you see and the stuff that you see online, you know, those TV spots, the 30 second clips and stuff, you know, and what happened when things shut down is a lot of people lost their jobs, you know, so as opposed to other parts of the entertainment industry where you have Screen Actors Guild or the Directors Guild or the Writers Guild, there were no protections for an, um, a trailer editor who lost his job or, you know, a designer who specializes in making movie posters who lost their job. So we put a 501c3 together as quickly as we could. And listen, we, you know, we did the best we could. And sometimes it was just about getting somebody a Trader Joe's card so they could, you know, get some groceries that week. Because literally... People were calling me up like, Corey, man, I, I don't know if I'm going to be living under a bridge by next week. Like, I can't pay my rent. I can't pay my mortgage. I, I can't, you know, so people were really scared. So just, you know, we couldn't solve everybody's prop, all of everybody's problems, but at least we could bring some relief. And then eventually what we started doing was helping people. Like once we started transitioning, the in- industry started transitioning into work from home. Some people were out of a job for a few months, so they couldn't even afford to get like a desktop computer so they could do their job. So we were starting to hook people up with resources like that so that people could go back to work if they didn't have the resources or the tools. 
And a part of it too was there were other there were other organizations that were forming. A lot of people in our community are you know historic parts of historically marginalized people groups. So that wasn't our main gig. We started out before George Floyd was killed, but we did want to lend our support to organizations that that were taking the lead on that. So that was another kind of offshoot of what we ended up doing. But yes, thanks. It's called the Alliance for Entertainment Advertising Arts. So thanks for asking me about that. Sweet. Tell people about your podcast. Tell us what it's about and how we can listen to it. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we talked about it already. It's called Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. We're on all the major apps, Apple and Spotify and, I don't know, Stitcher. We're on all of them. Easiest way to find us, because it's a long title, it's politicsandreligion.us. So the end is spelled out, politics and www.politicsandreligion.us. And it's fun, man. Like, I'm a nobody in the world of politics and religion. I'm just, you know, the Jew from Jersey who became a Christian. And that's all, you know, nobody knows me. But it was so cool. Like, I started hitting people up that are very prominent whether they're like national journalists or writers or theologians or academics, faith leaders, politicians. And I've had some of my heroes on there. It's just, I've been really encouraged that people, even though they don't know me from Adam, they got back to me and they're like, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's do it. And they'd pop on for just like we're doing right now. And so I've had conversations with some of my favorite writers like Pete Weiner. A fellow named Jonathan Rausch came on for two different conversations just recently. The the lady who was uh, governor of New Jersey before I moved from New Jersey, Christine Todd Whitman, and she she was also in George W. Bush's cabinet. She came on the program, but she's really interesting to me because she's a re- long, lifelong Republican and still identifies as a Republican. But she felt very strongly about what was happening during the Trump era. So she, as a Republican, spoke at the Democratic National Convention in 2020. So uh, she's just very, very interesting uh, lady and a very prominent p- political figure. So we've had all kinds, Dr. Russell Moore, fellow who led the ERLC of uh, the Southern Baptist Convention before he left because he, he, he left in protest because they weren't doing the right thing about sexual abuse scandals. So Dr. Russell Moore, just a whole bunch of really cool, just, yeah. I even got like, so one time we stepped outside of our, our regular zone of politics and religion. One of my favorite musicians, this guy named John Popper, he's the harmonica player, lead singer of, of Blues Traveler. And he's always, he's been like one of my favorite musicians because he grew up two towns over from me in New Jersey and the Blues Traveler got really big, especially like in the early to mid nineties and Popper came on, but you know, so we talked about some music and Blues Traveler, but we also talked about politics and religion with Popper. So Sometimes we'll step outside of the politics and religion thing and talk to somebody cool like that. But yeah, so that's what we're doing. And what we're doing is just as the title suggests, we're trying to get different people from all different walks of life, uh, you know, to talk about really important things in a more edifying, engaging, and hopefully a fun way. So yeah. (laughs) You have any upcoming projects that you're working on that people need to know about? Uh, So yeah, just kind of moving forward with talking politics and religion without killing each other. Really excited about some guests we have. I'm interviewing a fellow named Miles Taylor on Wednesday. So we'll be releasing that, not next week, but maybe the week after. He's, if anybody remembers, there was this, this opinion piece that was published in the New York Times in 2018 by Anonymous. And that was Miles Taylor. He ended up writing a book about it too, um, anonymously at first, because he didn't want to make it about him. 
He was chief of staff in the Department of Homeland Security during Trump's presidency. And he was just blowing the whistle, basically like, hey, guys, this is a train heading for a cliff. It ain't it ain't pretty. And here's exactly what's going on. So I get to talk to him. He's he's part of a, a an organization called Renew America Movement, which is very much aligned with what we're trying to do with TPNR with with the podcast. So have him on. We had uh, we just interviewed a guy named Ali Nurani, who is part of the Hewlett Foundation now, but he is a very prominent figure in immigrant immigration politics. And yeah, so we're just keeping, you know, one, one foot in front of the other, interviewing all different kinds of interesting people on that program from, you know, longtime Republicans to very, very far left people, religious people. I've had, you know, a few people on there just recently who are not religious at all, you know, because I want to learn from folks who identify like the head of the student secular, uh, secular student alliance, Kevin Bowling interesting, interesting dude, or somebody we interviewed in India to learn about Hinduism, a great lady, Sadviji. So yeah, just one foot in front of the other, just trying to interview a bunch of different people from all different walks of life and backgrounds and having fun doing it, man. And can we catch all your social media links on politicsandreligion.us? Yeah, politicsandreligion.us. And on, on social, it's T-P-A-N-D-R pod, T-P-N-D-R pod. That's Twitter. I'm on, we're even on TikTok. <laughs> so. All right. Well, go ahead and close us out with some final thoughts, maybe something that we didn't talk about that you would like to touch on or just any final thoughts you'd like to give the listeners. Nah, you know, I don't want to leave anybody with a bad impression of that. It's, it's hopeless and it's only fighting out there. Basically, I just want to encourage folks that, like these, these subjects are really important. And I, again, I'm very grateful to you, Curtis, for, for having me on to talk about it because we're often told like, hey, don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. You know, it gets too tense in here. But that's only because a lot of the loudest, most obnoxious voices take it over. You know, the extremists take over those conversations. The screamers, as I call them, take them over. So whether it's at your dinner table, you know, at the coffee shop, the local coffee shop, around the athletic field, you know, where our kids or nephews or whatever are playing or, you know, at the city council, wherever it might be, there's a silenced majority or an exhausted majority of us that are a lot more nuanced in our views. We're not all extremists on one side or the other. Not every issue is, is binary, either or this side, the other side. Many more of us who haven't been part of these conversations, who've been squeezed out by the screamers, have much more nuanced views. And I just hope folks just, you know, maybe one time, just try it, just take one step. You know, it's, it's like exercising, you know, don't, don't try to become Arnold Schwarzenegger overnight, but maybe just, you know, get into a habit of like having a conversation with that open heart, you know, a thick skin, but a soft heart, if you will. So I hope, I hope folks will be encouraged to do that because there's a lot more of us that can do this thing that can do this thing without killing each other than, uh, than you would think if all you listen to is, is AM radio. <laughs> so, Ladies and gentlemen, politicsandreligion.us. Be sure to check out Corey Nathan, check out his podcast and everything that he's up to. Also, for the folks listening on Facebook, you can check out the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Corey, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate you, Curtis. Thanks again for having me. 
For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.